We're going to read from Exodus chapter 7 and beginning in verse 14. The words will appear up on the screen here, but if you've got a physical Bible with you, I'm sure that would be helpful. And we're going to read to chapter 8 and verse 19 first of all. So, Exodus chapter 7 and verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, but this you shall say, you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile and it shall turn, it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die and the Nile will stink and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood, and there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did this as the Lord commanded, in the sight of Pharaoh and the sight of his servants. He lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them. As the Lord has said, Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go... Behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swim, shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand, uh, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals and over the ponds and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and make, and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let them go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people. 
that the frogs be cut off from you and from your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, tomorrow, Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them, as the Lord said." Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth, so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth. And there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Uh, Benny's going to be reading from Exodus chapter 20 um, up to chapter 9 and verse 12. Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning and confront Pharaoh as he goes to the water and say to him, This is what the Lord says, Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you do not let my people go, I will send swarms of flies on you and your officials, on your peoples and into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians will be full of flies and even the ground where they are. But on that day, I will deal differently with the land of Goshen, where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there, so that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. This miraculous sign will occur tomorrow. And the Lord did this. Then swarms of flies poured into Pharaoh's palace and into the houses of his officials. And throughout Egypt, the land was ruined by the flies. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God here in the land. But Moses said, That would not be right. The sacrifices we offered the Lord our God would be detestable to the Egyptians. And if we offer sacrifices that are detestable in their eyes, will they not stone us? We must take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God as he commands us. Pharaoh said, I will let you go to offer sacrifices to the Lord your God in the desert, but you must not go very far. Now pray for me. Moses answered, As soon as I leave you, I will pray to the Lord. And tomorrow the flies will leave Pharaoh and his officials and his people. Only be sure that Pharaoh does not act deceitfully again by not letting the people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Then Moses left Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did what Moses asked. The flies left Pharaoh and his officials and his people. Not a fly remained, but this time also Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let the people go. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. 
Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go and continue to hold them back, the hand of the Lord will bring a terrible plague on your livestock in the field, on your horses and donkeys and camels, and on your cattle and sheep and goats. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and that of Egypt, so that no animal belonging to the Israelites will die. The Lord set a time and said, Tomorrow the Lord will do this in the land. And the next day the Lord did it, and the livestock of the Egyptians died. But not one animal belonging to the Israelites died. Pharaoh sent men to investigate and found that not even one of the animals of the Israelites had died. Yet his heart was unyielding, and he would not let the people go. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handsful of soot from a furnace and have Moses toss it into the air in the presence of Pharaoh. It will become fine dust over the whole land of Egypt, and festering boils will break out on men and animals throughout the land. So they took soot from a furnace and stood before Pharaoh. Moses tossed it into the air, and festering boils broke out on men and animals. The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils that were on them and on all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron. Just as the Lord said to Moses. And now we are going to have our final reading, um, which will be concluding this section from Exodus chapter 9 and verse 13 to chapter 10 and verse 29. And then Johnny will come up and speak to us. I've brought the water along with me, so hopefully my voice will hold. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now, therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter, for every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses, but whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field." Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand towards heaven so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff towards heaven and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth and the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. 
and the hail struck down every plant of the earth, of the field, and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in bud. But the wheat and the emmer were not struck down, for they are late in coming up. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord. And the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go in to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them. And that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land, so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail, and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. And they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen, from the day they came on earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servant said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go, serve the Lord your God, but which ones are to go? Moses said, We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and daughters and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, the Lord be with you. If ever I let you and your little ones go, look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No. Go, the men among you, and serve the Lord, for that is what you are asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and every plant in, and eat every plant in the land, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. 
The locusts came up all over the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts as has never been seen before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened, and they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field, through all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand towards heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand towards heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take of them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to them, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you will see my face, you shall die. Moses says, As you say, I will not see your face again. Well, good morning, everyone. It's very good to see you all. Um, my name's Johnny, if we haven't met before. Uh, I'm uh, the pastor and part of the leadership uh, team here at Hebron. Um, we are going to be looking together at those chapters um, over the next few minutes. Um, I know it's a large chunk of text. I know we've been reading quite a lot this morning. Um, in, in one sense, I think it's helpful because it is particularly familiar territory, I guess, for a lot of us. We'll have a frame of reference for, for the plagues or might have heard of them even growing up. It's helpful to see what the Bible actually says uh, rather than maybe the, the, the ideas or images we have in our head. And to that, I, uh, to, uh, to that end, it'd be helpful to have the text open in front of you if you have a Bible um, to trace what the Bible actually tells us and why it tells us what it tells us um, over the course of the next few minutes. If you can do that, that would be a help. Before we think about it together, though, let me ask for God's help. Let's pray. Peter writes this, we have the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Our God and Father, we praise you for your sure and certain word. And we pray this morning that you would please help each of us to pay attention to it as to a lamp shining in a dark place. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we begin, 
going to ask Emily to pop the next slide on up for me. Super, there we go, thank you. Showing you a picture to begin with, a particular uh, picture taken from an advertisement. Uh, I'm going to ask for some participation to begin with, which I can already feel some of you tensing up at that P word, participation. I'm just going to ask for one, uh, one piece of participation. Can anyone tell me what this is an advertisement for? Anyone shout it out. What's this an ad for? Coca-Cola. Great. That's great. Now, that is uh, the quickest quiz in all of history, I guess. Uh, Not a particularly stretching one. And yet, that's actually the point of this particular quiz. Because if you're someone who enjoys drinking Coca-Cola, or even if you aren't, This is an instantly recognizable brand, and it is to to literally billions of people around the world, sold in over 200 countries around the world. And the fact that it is recognizable to billions of people, even people who wouldn't touch the stuff themselves, well, that's one of the great success stories in modern marketing. Because the advert itself doesn't actually say the words Coca-Cola, if you look closely. All it says is Cola. And there are lots of different kinds of cola out there. You might be aware of a drink called Fentiman's Curiosity Cola. That's the, the posh one that you tend to, to buy for a fortune eh, when you're in a coffee shop. But even if you were aware that Fentiman's exists, I'm guessing that none of us in this room, when this image of a red truck and the white writing appeared on the screen before us, none of us wondered, could that be an ad for Fentiman's? Because there's a difference, isn't there, between brand awareness and brand recognition. Brand awareness is just being aware that a particular brand or product exists, knowing that Fentiman's is a thing, for example. But brand recognition, well, that comes from a much deeper familiarity. And the reason I mention that this morning is that the key objective of the events we've read about so far, that big, big, long reading from Exodus chapter 7 to 10, It is to move people from brand awareness to brand recognition. Only by brand, I'm not talking about a corporate organization or a drinks company. not even talking about a something, actually. I'm talking about a someone, about the God of the Bible. See, if you're joining us for the first time in in this series in Exodus, let me firstly say a very warm welcome. Uh, We've seen over recent weeks uh, that the book of Exodus begins with God's people enslaved. They're in slavery in Egypt under the oppressive rule of a ruler or a king called Pharaoh. God, though, had promised to rescue his people out of that slavery. And so two Sunday mornings ago, we saw what looked like the beginning or the breaking of a new dawn for God's people. Moses, who was God's appointed leader, he he approached Pharaoh as he'd been told to do by God, and he spoke those now famous words, let my people go. Only when he spoke them, Pharaoh didn't play ball. He refused to let them go. And as we saw a couple of weeks ago, the, the reason for that refusal was that even though Moses was making him aware of who God was, even by making the demand on behalf of the God of the Hebrews, Pharaoh didn't recognize him. So let my people go, said Moses. And in response, Exodus chapter 5, verse 2, Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. He didn't recognize who this God was. I don't know him, says Pharaoh. 
Now, this morning we come to this famous story of the plagues in Exodus chapters 7 to 10. I say famous in that it's one of the stories in the Bible that I guess has stuck in popular imagination. But apart from making great material for movie makers and, and filling up page after page in children's story Bibles, I wonder, have you ever asked yourself, why are there so many plagues? I mean, why doesn't God just teleport his people out of there? He's powerful enough to do it. Or at the very least, why not skip the first nine plagues and move on to the tenth? Have you ever wondered that before? Well, helpfully, the text tells us. Look at me with me, if you would, at chapter 9, verse 14. God says this to Pharaoh. For this time, I'll send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I've raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. I could have zapped you all with one plague if I'd wanted, says God. The reason there are ten plagues, and not just one though, is that I want Pharaoh to know, I want the Egyptians to know, I want the world to know exactly who I am, what kind of God I am. Not just to be aware of me or to have a vague sense of something supernatural out there, but to recognize me as powerful, as unique, that there are none like me. Now that was God's objective for Pharaoh in these plagues. And I think it's his objective for us as we read about them together this morning. Not brand recognition, if you like, but God recognition. And there are three particular aspects of what he's like that I think he wants people to recognize. We're going to spend the rest of our time tracing those out together now. Just take each of those in turn. Firstly, know God as the powerful Lord of creation. We've already touched on the question of why God does things this way. Why ten plagues rather than just the one? But beyond that question, there's another question. Why these plagues in particular? So as we work our way through them, the the, uh, River Nile is turned to blood. There's a plague of frogs, a plague of gnats, a plague of flies, a plague of livestock. There are boils, hail, locusts, and there is darkness. Why does God choose these plagues? Instead of any other, he might have chosen. Why not bring economic disaster upon the Egyptians, for example? Or war? That would be pretty disastrous for a nation state. Why these plagues instead? Well, they are all different from one another. But what links all of the plagues God does bring is they all demonstrate control. Control of a very particular kind. It's control over the natural order. The water the earth, the air, the sky. The Egyptians had lots of different gods. They were powerful over various different domains. They worshipped a god, for example, called Ra, who was the sun god. He had power over the sun. Whether each of these plagues in Exodus 7 to 10 corresponds to a particular Egyptian god, I'm not quite sure on that. But at the very least, The plagues are showing that he is of a completely different order of being from anything they've come across before. 
He is the God who made everything, who controls everything, and who therefore, particularly in the case of these plagues, can unmake everything. Water, notice, becomes a source of death in the River Nile, rather than a source of life. Animals, rather than providing food for people, either bring torment with frogs and gnats and flies, or they die altogether, like in Plague 8. Even the sun, that great source of energy and light that makes so much tick, it disappears. God is showing himself to be powerful over all of creation. Now, you might want to come back to me at that point with an objection, because God isn't the only one with power over creation in Exodus 7 to 10, is he? Pharaoh, notice, has some magicians on hand who seem to be able to do the same kind of stuff God was doing. We saw last week, and it carries on into these plagues themselves. They succeed in turning water to blood, for example, in chapter 7, just as God had done. They even managed to emulate that second plague. Read with me, chapter 8, verse 7, if you would. The magicians did the same, that's the same as God, by their secret arts, And they made frogs come up onto the land of Egypt. They summoned some extra frogs. Incidentally, that sounds like a strange thing for them to do. I'm guessing that after a plague of frogs, no one was really crying out for any more. And yet they managed to conjure some more. But though they keep up up to a certain point, well, they can't keep up for long. By the time we get to the gnats, they've given up. And by the time the boils arrive in chapter 9, they're in the same position as everyone else in Egypt. Chapter 9, verse 11, the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. The point being made, I think, is that yes, the magicians managed to do some fairly amazing things. But this God, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, he is out of their league He is a God who is uniquely powerful over all of creation. And again, that does make sense in the context we've seen in Exodus as a whole. We touched on that in our introduction this morning. Pharaoh's problem with God in chapter 5, remember, was that he didn't know who he was. Why should I listen to someone I've never even heard of before? But you see, after these nine plagues, he's left in little doubt, is he? This is the God he's messing with. And by standing in his way, well, he's doing a very, very silly thing indeed. And actually, silly doesn't really cut it at all. Messing with this God, trying to stand in his way, well, that has dreadful consequences. We'll think about that under our second heading. He judges his opponents. So far, I'm aware that my illustration about brand awareness versus brand recognition might make what's going on in Exodus sound like quite a trivial thing. If you were to offer someone a drink of Coca-Cola, if they came around to your house and they didn't know what you were talking about, for example, if they'd never heard of it before, you might be surprised by that. But it isn't that big a deal. You're going to get over it pretty quickly. They've just not heard of it before. They don't recognize it. That's That's a sort of morally neutral thing. But you see, brand recognition, when it comes to the God of the Bible, it is not neutral at all. It is morally freighted. And that's made clear with what we're told about Pharaoh. There is a repeating pattern with each of the plagues. 
God repeatedly shows himself to be this powerful God over creation. And Pharaoh each time seems to recognize that only someone who really is powerful could have done this kind of thing. And only someone who is powerful could undo this kind of thing. And so he agrees to let his people go with a plague of frogs, for example. Chapter 8, verse 8. Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I'll let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. The message, it seems to be getting through to him. Don't mess with this God. He really is powerful. Until the plague subsides. And the mood changes. Chapter 8, verse 15. Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh goes back on his word, and he hardens his heart to God. Now, while we're on that idea, the idea of people hardening their hearts to God, it is worth pulling into a lay-by for just a moment. Because there are three different kinds of heart hardening in Exodus. You might have clocked that as we read through it a few minutes ago. Sometimes the references just say that Pharaoh's heart was was hardened. Sometimes they say that Pharaoh himself hardened his own heart, that he was the, the sort of active agent in things, like the verse we've just read there, chapter 8, verse 15. Sometimes they say, though, that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. That God is the the agent causing the hardening, like in in chapter 9, verse 12, for example. Three different explanations of why Pharaoh is opposing God. One that seems passive, one that seems to say he did it, one that seems to say God himself did it. And I'm not flagging that up as a sort of academic point of interest, but because I'm aware that that idea may well rankle with some of us, especially that third category, the idea that God would harden Pharaoh's heart. can be an immensely painful thing for a lot of us, actually, as we think about family members or friends whom we would love to come to know God for themselves. How can that person be held responsible for, 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 for their reaction to God if God was the one who hardened their hearts? Well, it is just worth being clear, there is no sense in, in Exodus, nor anywhere else in the Bible, in which Pharaoh is ever treated as though he's a robot, an automaton, as, as though he lacks agency or he isn't responsible for his behavior. If you sat Pharaoh down and you asked him about his refusal to let the Israelites go, he would not tell you that he was doing it against his will. It's quite the opposite. He's the powerful Pharaoh over all of Egypt. He was doing exactly what he wanted to do. And yet at the same time, God is sovereignly in control of it all. Now we struggle to hold those two ideas together. I know we do. God's sovereignty and people's responsibility. It is difficult for us to get our heads around. The Bible never apologizes for it. Never presents it as though it's a bit embarrassing. It's quite matter of fact. But it is very clear And in fact, in the context of Exodus 7 to 10, I wonder if you can see how that idea actually advances the main point. See, the picture we've been given of God is that he isn't just sovereign over creation, although he is, as if that weren't a big enough deal. It's that he's sovereign. He is king even over kings, kings like Pharaoh. And that does sort of change the pallor of how we read 
all of these chapters put together, doesn't it? It's why I think it's worth actually having the text open in front of us and seeing what it says, not what we imagine it to say. Because in some of the dramatic adaptations of Exodus for sort of storybooks or, or for film or TV, this conflict between Pharaoh and God, it's, it's portrayed as though things are on a sort of knife edge. You know, two great titans battling it out for supremacy. Which one will win? That isn't what it's like at all. God is of a completely different order of power than Pharaoh. He is completely in control. And that makes Pharaoh's opposition to God seem not just silly, but really, really foolish. And yet even if it does look foolish in Pharaoh's life, I'm guessing there may well be people in this room who right now are doing exactly the same thing. Opposing God. Trying to, 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 to sort of barter with him. Stringing him along. Thinking we can play him against himself. That is a very, very dangerous game to play. Some of you might have heard before of a man called Louis Zamperini. I think I've mentioned him in, in Hebron before, actually. He was a subject of a film released, I think, five or ten years ago called Unbroken. And his life was an amazing one. He competed in the Berlin Olympics in the 1930s. And his, uh, his running career was rudely interrupted by the Second World War. It called up to serve in the U.S. Air Force. During the war, Zamperini suffered... Well, a really dreadful run of circumstances. The plane he was flying in was shot down whilst flying over the Pacific Ocean. He and one other airman survived, and they survived for 47 days floating in an inflatable life raft on the Pacific Ocean, fending off multiple shark attacks with a stick and being strafed by a passing Japanese fighter jet. They don't make them like that anymore. Finally, they were found by a passing ship, which looks like hope has been realized until they realized the ship is Japanese. And they were taken into prisoner of war camps where they lived out the rest of the war in horrific conditions. It is an amazing story, if pretty harrowing at points. But at one point during that whole ordeal, while Zamperini was floating in this inflatable life raft, a dinghy, in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. He found himself really at the end of himself. And he prayed to God, the kind of prayer that begins with the words, God, if there really is a God, if, if you really are out there, if you can hear me. And in his prayer, he promised God that if he made it out of there alive, he would give his life to God's service. Spoiler alert, he did make it out alive. That's where the movie ends, but not where Zamperini's story ends. He made it back to the US, and he didn't keep his promise. He returned to living his life as he wanted to live it. And it was a downward spiral. Over time, he developed an alcohol problem that became such a problem that his marriage and his family life was falling apart around him. His wife, who was just desperate by that stage, made her way to a meeting being held by a traveling Christian preacher. And after listening to what the preacher had to say, she became a Christian. But Zamperini himself, well, he was still really reluctant to go, really angry about the fact his wife had become a Christian, until finally relenting and going to one of those meetings with her, just to make her happy. At which point he realized that he needed to lay down his arms and submit his life to God. And he did just that. He became a Christian. 
It's a wonderful story. And yet, towards the end of his life, Zamperini would look back on that bargain that he struck while on his knees, floating on a little life raft in the middle of of the Pacific Ocean. And he would say that in that moment, as he looked to strike a bargain, he was still set against God at that point. He was trying to play him off against himself, to put him off until later. And I do just wonder if someone here might be very much like Louis Zamperini, very much like Pharaoh for that fact, dabbling with the idea of submitting to God, of giving your life to him. I'll do it, but just not quite yet. I've got other things to do before I settle down and think about Christianity. I'll I'll get to it later. There's, There's loads of time. Well, the Bible's explanation of that is that that is not a neutral act. That you are opposed to God. And that that opposition, it has deadly consequences. God judges people who oppose him. Now, for Pharaoh and the Egyptians, that judgment was visible and it was immediate in the plagues. For us, that judgment looks slightly different, but it's no less serious. In fact, there are not one but three horizons to God's judgment. There is a present horizon. God exercises judgment upon people for rejecting him, even in the here and now. Not not, not by smiting people in a dramatic way necessarily with boils, boils or frogs, but by handing people over to the consequences of our decisions. Even by hardening the hearts of people who themselves have hardened themselves to him. And so for the person who says, I don't have time for God now, I'll give him some thought when I'm a bit older, for example. But when that day finally comes, when they are older, their hearts are completely calcified. They're implacably hardened to him. Lots of people don't take the chance later, as Zamperini did. There is a present dimension to this judgment, but there is also a future horizon. One day God will return, or the Lord Jesus will return. And when he comes back, he's not arriving as a fragile baby born in a manger, but as a conquering king. And all opposition and rebellion and stringing him along will be shown for what it is. And it will be dealt with. Whether we've openly thumbed our noses at God or whether we've just gently ignored him and put him off until later. See, the mighty, powerful God of Exodus chapter 7 to 10 is not to be trifled with. You do not, listen, you do not get God around the negotiating table to try and set out your terms with him. That is just not how this thing works. And so if you feel that you are trifling with him now, if you are playing around with God, this should give us pause. There's a difference between genuinely thinking about things, investigating things, and and actually just playing around with them. But if you are in that latter category, this is the powerful God of all creation. Stop playing. He deserves your allegiance. And yet, that isn't the whole story in Exodus 7 to 10. Because tucked away through the narrative, we see that not only is God powerful in judgment, he is also mighty to save. We'll think about that under our final heading. Very briefly, he rescues his people. Now, Muhammad Ali is renowned as being one of the best boxers in boxing history. He was lightning quick around the ring, said to float like a butterfly. But he wasn't just quick. He was also powerful. He could sting, he said, like a bee. 
And that makes this picture quite a striking one, I think. This is Muhammad Ali holding his baby daughter. And the reason it's striking, I think at least, is that the same hands, the same arms that sent the mightiest of mighty men tumbling to the canvas are here cradling his own child. And the same thing can be said of the God of Exodus chapters 7 to 10. See, we've seen God this morning working mighty acts of judgment, wielding creation like a sword in his hand. And that makes it all the more striking that that same God whose mighty hand can act works of judgment on his opponents would care for, would protect, would preserve his people. And he does. I wonder if you noticed that as you read through the story. The plagues that strike Egypt are terrible, but they don't land on all of the land. Read with me from the plague of flies. Chapter 8, verse 22. On that day, says God, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. It's the same again, we're told, with the livestock in chapter 9, the hail again in chapter 9. The same God who is mighty in judgment is protecting, preserving, rescuing his people. Now, I mentioned a few moments ago that for us there are three horizons to God's judgment, and then the more vigilant of you might have spotted I listed only two. I noted the present judgment. I mentioned a future horizon of Jesus' return. I didn't miss the third horizon out because I can't count, although that's always a real possibility. I missed it out because this last horizon of God's judgment, it is also the place of his rescue. It's the past tense of God's judgment. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, the cross is where God's judgment against all human rebellion and sin was poured out In all its fullness, the just and right anger of a mighty and powerful God came crashing down. Only it didn't fall on the people who deserved it, on us. It fell on the only one to have lived who didn't, on Jesus Christ. Now, what practical implication does any of that have for us? Well, just think for a moment what it must have felt like to be one of God's people during the plagues as plague after plague after plague fell on the Egyptians, mighty, destructive, terrifying plagues, and yet they're kept safe. Thank goodness this mighty God is on our side, they must have thought, that he is for us. If this God's for us, who could be against us? And so it is for us, not in a sort of sentimental way, But knowing that this God, the powerful, mighty God over all creation, knowing that he is for you, has purpose to rescue you, well, that is a reassuring thing, is it not? So for the Christian I met with not too long ago, who is really anxious about dying, who knows they shouldn't be, knows that the Christian faith offers hope of eternal life, but still really struggles with fears and anxieties about whether they really will pass through death into eternity. Or for the person, a minister friend of mine met with not too long ago, who was concerned that they might be beyond God's help, that they had too sordid a past for God to be able to rescue them. One way of addressing those kinds of questions is to downplay the seriousness of the problem. 
That's what I could have said to the, the person struggling with the idea of death, to pretend that death's no big deal. Or my friend could have pretended that God doesn't really mind how you lived your life, to downplay the problem. But the thing is, that's just not true. The answer is not to downplay the seriousness of the problem. It's to tell you about the one who's even stronger than your fears. To grow your confidence in the one who is mighty to rescue his people. Knowing that your future is secure in the everlasting hands of this mighty rescuing God is a wonderful reassurance. So if you're a Christian and you feel your heart aflutter, well, take heart. And it isn't only reassuring. It's also compelling. And I mean that quite literally. It compels people. The news that this God is mighty to rescue is news that we are called to share. God makes that point explicitly in chapter 10. He says, The Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I've done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. Tell your children about this mighty God, he says. Pass it on. And it isn't just for your sons and daughters. Remember chapter 9, one of the big ideas, one of the reasons he's bringing the plagues to bear is so that his name might be proclaimed in all the earth, that people from top to bottom of the world would know that there are none like him. Now, our culture doesn't always treat the message of Jesus as though it's worth listening to. And when we speak to people about Jesus, it's often treated as though it's, it's good for you, but not for me. You have your truth, I'll have mine. Over time, we might be tempted to think that that might have something to it, to feel as though, well, this does work for me, why bother anyone else with it? But can you see, this God is mighty over all of creation. He deserves everyone's honor and praise, not just a select few, but everyone. And rejecting him or putting him off or opposing him has such dreadful consequences. And yet, he has purpose to rescue people to himself. And so, brothers and sisters, let's go forth and tell that the mighty, the incomparable, sovereign God of all creation has come. And he is mighty to save. Let's ask for his help to tell of that good news together now. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we come before you this morning and praise you for your extraordinary power, that you are incomparable unlike anything or anyone else in this world. And yet we thank you for your extraordinary kindness in sending Jesus so that our failure to recognize your incomparable might and power might be forgiven. That he would bear the good and right judgment of our rebellion against you on his own shoulders. Help us, please, to appreciate that, to enjoy that, to take heart from that this morning, and to go forth and tell of that good news to the people around us. And we ask that even today, someone would please lay down their arms before you, would seek your forgiveness for the very first time, 
and would receive, receive this grace for themselves. We ask all of this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.